Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy and friends are resting this week and will return next week. However, we have a leader from our local church community giving today's message. Hey guys, so welcome back. So as you know, this is the second week of Dr. Kellens. We're going to give you a two-minute recap of last week. Uh, before we read a quote from Dr. Francis Collins' book, The Language of God, uh, in a second. Uh, But at the same time, uh, in this segment, uh, we'll be going over the vaccine rollout, climate change, um, science, how it's compatible with our faith, and all those questions that are very interesting that we can glean from and learn from. So uh, before, before further ado, let's go to a quote from... Dr. Callan's book, Language of God, and we'll go right into the Q&A. So see you soon. Bye. Hello. This week we'll be reading an excerpt from The Language of God by Francis S. Collins, page 27. Agape, or selfless altruism, presents a major challenge for the evolutionists. It is, quite frankly, a scandal to reductionist reasoning. It cannot be accounted for by the drive of individual selfish genes to perpetuate themselves. Quite the contrary. It may lead humans to make sacrifices that lead to great personal suffering, injury, or death without any evidence of benefit. And yet, if we carefully examine the inner voice we sometimes call conscience, the motivation to practice this kind of love exists within all of us, despite our frequent efforts to ignore it. Bye, y'all. Good morning, everyone. Hello to Charlotte. Hello to all the people that are listening from all over the place. Yeah, I grew up in a family where faith was not considered very relevant. Um, It wasn't denigrated. It just wasn't considered something that you would want to spend time on. And so going through college and then off to graduate school studying physical chemistry, I had no real interest in faith and slipped into a mode of being initially an agnostic, although I'm not sure I even knew the word at that point. And then by the time I was a graduate student studying quantum mechanics, I was an atheist. Then I went to medical school, a rather sudden turn in my professional hopes and dreams about how to apply science. And then those questions about life and death stopped being hypothetical because I was sitting at the bedside of good North Carolina people whose lives were probably not going to go on much longer. And in a very memorable moment, one of my patients, an elderly woman with really bad heart disease, after sharing her faith with me in a very open, personal, genuine way, uh, asked me what I believe. And I realized I had absolutely no answer. And that made me very uncomfortable. And that began a bit of a journey on my part to try to understand why do these people believe this stuff anyway? I figured I needed to shore up my atheism by having a better understanding of the history of faith, which I assumed was mostly superstition. I thought Jesus was a myth. I didn't realize there was more evidence for his historical existence than for almost any other figure uh, in antiquity. And then I began to realize if God cares about me, God must be holy because he seems to have implanted this sense of right and wrong in me that I can't really understand in the other ways. And yet, I know I'm often doing the wrong thing, and I need a way to approach Almighty God, who is ultimately holy, with my very unholy self. And suddenly, the need for Jesus became so clear to me. And I'm given that gift 
uh, of Christ's life and death and resurrection, and I'm given the gift of grace. And that gave me this great sense of understanding uh, and of peace. And as a 27-year-old um, first-year resident in internal medicine in Chapel Hill, uh, I accepted Jesus. Let, let me ask you, um, put yourself back when you were 15. Uh, what did Christmas mean to you? What did you think about angels? What do you think about uh, a virgin who wasn't married having a baby? How could that possibly happen? What, did you even think about those things back then? You know, I didn't think about it much. My only exposure to church uh, as a kid growing up uh, was music. Uh, my dad thought it would be good for me to learn how to sing in the um, all-male choir in the local Episcopal church. And so Christmas for me was all the rehearsals we did for that midnight service. Uh, and were you going to be the one who hit the wrong note and the choir master would throw the hymnal at you because he was quite capable of doing that. And as far as the rest of the trappings, uh, you know, we had pretty simple Christmas growing up on the farm. Uh, I don't know that I gave much thought. I loved listening to the Messiah. My dad would play that every Christmas Eve. Wow. Again, the music was glorious, but I paid very little attention to the words. And the idea of angels and the idea that there was a virgin birth, I wouldn't have spent 30 seconds thinking about that. So what would you, uh, thinking back, to then and now, um, how do you think about miracles now? How do you how do you think about uh, evolution now compared to then? How do you put these things together for a a layperson talking to their kids maybe about it or asking our own questions? Sure. No, it's a great question, Leighton, because here we are at Advent thinking about that rem unbelievable miracle of all time, the incarnation. You know, I guess before I got to the point of accepting the idea of a creator God who was outside of nature, the idea of accepting things that science couldn't measure, couldn't prove would have been really hard for me. But once I got to the point of recognizing the reality, the compelling arguments uh, for a creator God that made this all possible, the idea that God might then step into nature at moments of exceptional importance and essentially manipulate the laws that he had created in order to make something really miraculous happen, that didn't seem to bother me anymore. Now, mind you, I'm not one of those who is fond of saying that everyday occurrences are miraculous when I think they're things that probably science could explain. And I don't think I've called the opening up of a parking space a miraculous when it happened to appear in front of me. And I know some people have different views on that. Where's the faith? Where's the faith? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think miracles are ones that we should look at with great uh, care. Uh, they tend in the Bible to occur, as Lewis said, in those great ganglions of history where there is something really profound that God is trying to teach us about. And what's more profound, of course, uh, than the birth of the baby Jesus to a virgin. So I don't have any trouble uh, with those particular ways of understanding God's message. Um, many would say to me, well, surely you don't believe in the resurrection. Well, yes, I do. 
as Paul says, if you don't have the resurrection, then you're most to be pitied. Uh, and because it is the fundamental message of the whole story of Jesus' life and death. And so, again, if Jesus was, as I believe, not a man like myself, but actually God himself, how would you then object to the idea that even the laws of life and death uh, could be readily broken in order for Jesus to rise again and for the stone to be rolled away and for the tomb to be empty. I, I accept that. And of course, I'm always happy to see how others have addressed that. And one of my good friends now, uh, the former Bishop Tom Wright, and that wonderful book, if you haven't read it, and you're going to need a little time because it's about 700 pages long, called The Resurrection of the Son of God. If you really want to go through the historical evidence uh, for Jesus' resurrection, uh, that's the place I have found uh, to see it all put out there. What's in the Bible, also what's not in the Bible from other sources, and it's extremely compelling. This well, tell us again, tell us again the title of the book and the author. Uh, yeah, it's N.T. Wright, otherwise known as Tom Wright, um, and the title of the book is The Resurrection of the Son of God. Claude? So, so Francis, as, as you have spoken, um, this notion of, of the miraculous and worship in the lab, certainly, and, and how God uniquely moves in, in, in the ganglions of history, certainly this year has been that, one of those. How have you, how have you seen that? in this experience, one, and then two, how should we best steward what God is seeking to do in, in this time, in our response? Well, yeah, and I'm struggling with that every day, and let's be really clear, this is not a triumphal moment uh, for humanity uh, when you consider the devastation that has been uh, brought upon us uh, by this particular virus. This is my 3D printed version of the coronavirus that has now taken the lives of 290,000 people in the United States. And now we are losing about 3,000 people a day, as many as we lost in 9-11 uh, to this virus all over the country now, not isolated in certain parts. Uh, certainly wherever you are listening from, unless you're in Northern Maine or Hawaii, you're in the red zone because the red zone is now our entire country. And the tragedy that that has wreaked on so many lives and families or in grief and economic distress uh, was just not expected or anticipated. This is the worst pandemic our world has seen in 102 years uh, since that 1918 influenza. We knew that something like this was likely to happen at some point in our future, but we didn't know when. We didn't know it was gonna be a coronavirus. I guess I would have guessed it was gonna be influenza, but this is what happened. As this virus crossed from animals to humans, probably from a bat, maybe by way of a pangolin. And we should not sort of fail to notice that one of the reasons for this is our increasing ability to bring humans and animals uh, close together in ways that allows this kind of transmission. And that means we may very well in the future see other kinds of global pandemics emerge in the same way. I think it's appropriate before we talk about ways in which progress has been made, because there's been a lot of that also, just to lament the situation that we've been through 
and to recognize that this is one of those moments where I think God grieves with us, but yet God is there beside us. I've been reading the Psalms a lot this year, <laughs> as they will cover sort of all of these experiences of celebration and disaster and grief and anger and all the rest of it. And we've all been there, haven't we? And Psalm 46 uh, particularly comes to mind. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. You read that and you go, okay, that means that trouble is part of our human existence. God does not promise to take it away, but promises to be the refuge when it happens. Okay, it is happening. It's happening today. It's all around us, but God promises to be that refuge and our strength. And I've been trying to lean on that in the course of all this and, and hoping uh, that that gives us the courage to go forward with every kind of way that we can, that God gives us the grace uh, through the tools of science to try to address this. And it's been a long year for sure. I've probably been working on COVID-19 90 hours a week uh, since January. Uh, and that's, I'm not complaining. It's just, if you have the opportunity to bring all of the scientific talent together, you can't let a day go by. People are dying. Every day that you waste uh, is unforgivable. So you have to keep pushing this forward. And what's happened has been just amazing in terms of giving me hope and uh, appreciation of the human character when called upon uh, to address uh, a terrible challenge. Scientists uh, from universities, uh, from the government, uh, from industry, pulled together around the same table in ways that were previously not imaginable and dropping everything to just say, what can we all do? Let's not worry a bit about who gets the credit. Let's not worry about too many legal agreements about intellectual property. Let's just do this. And here we are at this very day uh, with shipments of a vaccine uh, headed towards the most vulnerable people uh, in the next few days uh, that will give us some hopes that we have a light at the end of this tunnel, that hope is on the way. Uh, that is incredibly gratifying, even as I have to grieve that it didn't come quickly enough for those 290,000. <clears> and <throat> we're going to lose a lot more people in the next two, three, four months as the vaccine distribution and the manufacturing ramps up to the point that ultimately by maybe summer, all of us will be able to get immunized if we're interested in doing so. And one of the other heartaches I have now is that there seems to be a lot of skepticism at a time where we have the chance for healing uh, for a lot of individuals to take advantage of that, including a lot of Christians who are skeptical about whether this is something that they should take advantage of or whether Maybe it's a sign of something else, or maybe God will protect them by other means. God gave us the scientific ability to understand this and to come up with answers to it. For us to turn away from that doesn't seem to me like the kind of thing that God would expect. Let me ask about that, Francis. Uh, someone said to me, a, a good question, a, a believer said, we shouldn't be living in fear. The Bible tells us, don't, don't be afraid. And I, I understand that's a really good question. How do we balance uh, uh, a proper concern about things uh, with uh, being overcome by fear? Because we are in many ways a fearful society, aren't we? We are in our current culture and our current uh, attention to fearful things in the media, especially social media, whips that up further. And Christians are barraged by messages that are in, in 
intended to induce fear. No, we are not supposed to be uh, driven in that circumstance. Uh, what is it? Second Timothy uh, 1.7, I think it is. It says, we're not given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Okay, let's grab onto that. So let's, if, if you've got that spirit of power and love and self-control and you're faced with this epidemic, what do, should one do with it? Well, take all of the things that could help save lives and bring an end to this and use them. So I don't see why deciding that you want to adopt a vaccination approach for yourself and your family reflects that you were driven by fear. No, you're driven by power. This is power that God has given us through the tools of science to come to a healing. And you know, look at the life of Christ, how much time uh, that we know about that Christ was with us that he spent in a healing process. I think we were supposed to notice that. Now, if we have been given the opportunity to heal our nation, heal our world, why would we turn away from it? Uh, let me thank you. Uh, may I point out, folks, if you uh, do have a question, it'd be a good time as we move on to uh, go to your Q&A and ask that. We'll answer the ones we can. Claude, what, uh, how would you like us to keep on? First, let me unmute myself. <laughs> that's a good start. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great start. I know that we have Greg Johnson, who's been who's in the process of curating our questions. So, Greg, if you can come online, uh, unmute yourself, hit your video as we as we deal with with some questions. Great, thank you so much. Um, one of the questions, um, and I would say. Uh, for you, Dr. Collins, is um, how do we align uh, Jesus's birth in light of what we know about physical science and how babies are actually born? Oh, wonderful question. And one that it was kind of fun to think about as a geneticist. Uh, if uh, Jesus is the virgin birth, um, exactly what DNA would you find if you had the chance to do that investigation? I have no idea, and uh, we are not given the opportunity to learn that. There was a brief flurry of interest when people thought the Shroud of Turin might actually be uh, the shroud that was used at the time of Jesus' death, and maybe one could get a little bit of DNA off of it and see what it looked like. It was even a book called The DNA of God. Unfortunately, the dating turned out to be a little off. So um, we will not know. And again, I think this is part of that zone of the miraculous, which I can't really bring the scientific method to, because science is great at understanding things that are purely natural, purely material. Jesus was much more than that. I don't know quite how it worked, but it obviously worked miraculously wonderful. You could even argue whether this says that sinfulness is um, recessive as opposed to dominant, because... Jesus being both divine and human was without sin. So I think that means um, sinlessness must be dominant and sinfulness must be recessive. But I'm getting a little bit too far into Punnett squares for most people to be happy about. I should probably stop there. <laughs> Great. Um, some folks are asking about the um, some concerns about the efficacy of the vaccines. Anything you want to share to ease people's concerns about the vaccine? 
Well, we all want to look at all that data very carefully. And here's where I think our system in the United States is really the gold standard. All of the data from that a trial of 44,000 people was posted this past Tuesday night uh, in a public website, a uh, hundred pages of it with every kind of detail laid out. And you can look at that. And then that was discussed in an open all day meeting that anybody could listen to by the advisory committee to the FDA. So it's as about as transparent as it could be. And I've looked at all of that data. And again, I must say it is breathtaking to see just how good the vaccine was. 95% uh, efficacy. And that was true in every subgroup too. Some of the subgroups end up with fairly small numbers, but everything you look at, the elderly, people with chronic illnesses, people with different race or ethnic backgrounds, all of them seem to have this same evidence of very high efficacy. Side effects? Well, yeah, about 20% of the people in the trial who got the vaccine had a 24, 36 hour experience of a sore arm, maybe a little bit of fever or headache. Actually, I don't think of that so much as a side effect as an effect that tells you this vaccine has activated your immune system. You want it to activate your immune system. This is the sign that it's working. There were reports this week of two individuals in the United Kingdom who had a very severe allergic reaction uh, to the vaccine. But these were people who had previously had severe allergic reactions to vaccines and who carried actually one of these EpiPens, uh, which is a way to reverse that if it happens. There were none of those that happened in the 44,000 people in the trial, so it must not be common. I think the FDA is now recommending if you're somebody who's had a severe allergic reaction to a vaccine, this is probably not one you should do, or if you do, you should do it in the presence of uh, medical experts uh, to be sure if that happens. That's about the only thing I've seen that is a cause for concern, and that's pretty amazing. Uh, and this vaccine, again, by having been tested in 44,000 people, we know more about it than we generally would. Most vaccines get tried in maybe 4,000 people, and this is 10 times that. So there's a lot of data. Look at the data. Ignore the conspiracy theories that you see in the social media. Oh my gosh, they're very creative. People actually think that Bill Gates is getting chips into these syringes? Really? And this is going to make hair grow all over your body? Really? It's going to make you sterile? Oh, come on. I mean, this, these things uh, get out there and they get swirled around. Look at the real data. Christians are really good at this. You know how to size up evidence. The evidence is there. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, a fellow scientist asks that uh, he comments that as uh, you have commented, that he sees God alive in his work all the time, particularly um, as he does work on you know, DNA and protein sequences. Um, but his question is, in what ways do you see the relationship, uh, God and science in your daily studies? In what ways do you see the relationship of God and science in your daily studies? Once one accepts the view that God is the author of creation, then every bit of the complexity of life is a reflection of that. And I am awed at that. As a guy who had the chance to read the team that read out for the first time our DNA instruction book, The Human Genome, uh, it's probably almost every day where some amazing feature of humanity emerges in terms of our biology. And I just marvel at that. That in fact, that instruction book is so elegant that it's able to produce this kind of beauty and complexity. Right now, we're studying the brain, trying to understand how those 86 billion neurons between your ears do what they do. 
probably the most complicated structure in the known universe. And somehow that's encoded in this one-dimensional genome instruction book of just three billion letters. It just seems absolutely awe-inspiring. So yeah, I get that sense all the time. And the sense of beauty. You know, beauty is an interesting concept that strict atheists have a little trouble with. Like, well, why should there be such a thing as beauty? Why are we in awe of a sunset or of a particularly beautiful piece of music? What is that about? For a person of faith, it's no problem at all. It's your glimpse of the eternal, your glimpse of God. Uh, And I see beauty in science. I see beauty in what we are learning uh, from the most intricate workings of the cell to the complexities of the whole organism. It's beautiful in the way in which it's all put together. So yeah, it's hard for me to separate how I am learning things as a scientist and how I am worshiping God as a believer. And wonderful. Um, one uh, viewer is asking, do you have an example in your life where science tapers off and faith takes over? That's an interesting question. You know, there's a big interest going on right now. I mentioned studying the brain about what exactly are those moments of religious experience, uh, the sort of surprised by joy uh, experiences that Lewis writes about, which resonate totally with me, where you're lifted out of yourself by some kind of spiritual moment, some longing that you can hardly find words for. And as soon as you've started to uh, experience it, it kind of slips away, but it is this glimpse of what eternity must be like if all goes the way I hope it will. And yet that would be seen by a neuroscientist as, oh, it must have been some really interesting neurotransmitter (laughs) just got released into your ventral striatum. (laughs) like, yeah, maybe, but I don't want to stop there. I'm going to have to step beyond the simple mechanisms of biochemistry in my brain to something more profound. So yeah, that's that's where you step off uh, the, the reductionist approach into something that moves higher. Can I break in and uh, just a couple of questions here? One specific, someone asked, can you, is our guarantee the vaccine does not contain fetal tissue, toxic mess, metals, et cetera, or change one's RNA? We know that. We know that. So it is an RNA vaccine. Basically, it is RNA that is designed to be able, uh, when you inject it into muscle, that RNA will then code for this spike protein, the spikes that are on the surface of the virus. That then will prime your immune system to make antibodies against these spikes so that if the virus comes along later, you'll be ready to tackle it. The mRNA, though, that you inject in the vaccine only lives for a few hours uh, in your muscle cells, and then it's degraded. It's gone. It's it's, it's, uh, there, and then it's disappeared. And the immune system will continue to have that memory uh, of what it coded for, which is why you'll be immune. So it's actually a very transient effect. There are no toxic metals in this. There are no fetal cells uh, in this. In fact, fetal cells are not used in the production of the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines. So I think people should feel easy about that. There's another couple of vaccines that are in the pipeline, uh, one from Johnson & Johnson and one from AstraZeneca. Those do use a cell line uh, called HEK293 uh, to produce the vaccine. And that cell line was derived in 1972 
uh, from an elective termination in Scandinavia. Uh, and that was a cell line that biotechnology has found very useful. And there are people who are concerned about that, although the Roman Catholic Church are looking very carefully at the ethical issues and, of course, from a very pro-life position, have argued that Christians could take advantage of such a vaccine if there were no other alternatives available and if it was going to save lives. May I ask one more? This is a point of privilege from a doctor I happen to know. His father is a good friend of mine. He's at Duke Medical Center. And here's what he asked. There have been some missteps from the scientific community during this pandemic that led to skepticism. What have they been the biggest ones and how can confidence be restored and more generally in science as such? You know, this is an unfortunate part of what's happened this year, that skepticism has been a big part of the response uh, to the virus. Part of that is not that science has made missteps, but that we've been learning along the way things about the virus that we didn't know and didn't expect. A big issue is about wearing masks. Uh, back in the early part of 2020, uh, the advice from the Surgeon General and from Tony Fauci, who, by the way, works for me, uh, was that masks were not necessary. The concern was that masks were in short supply, and we knew that healthcare providers needed them to protect themselves. So it would not be a good thing to have a big run on them uh, by the public. And at that point, we didn't have the data that would tell us how valuable this could be. Let me explain that. This virus, unlike any virus that we have ever studied before, has this diabolical ability uh, to be contagious by people who have no symptoms. We did not expect that. Nobody expected that. Its predecessors, SARS and MERS, which are also coronaviruses, are only infectious by people who are already quite sick and you wanna stay away from them. But this virus is entirely capable of infecting somebody and having them be wildly contagious, a super spreader even, and feeling nothing except just fine. And sometimes they don't get sick at all or sometimes the illness symptoms are a few days later, but in that interval, uh, they are spreading the virus all over the place. We didn't really know that until about April or maybe even May of this year. When that became clear, then the idea of trying to prevent the spread really had to involve asking everybody because nobody knows who that super spreader with no symptoms might be to start wearing a mask. And hence the urgency for all of us to begin to recognize our responsibility to put this on. But this turned into such a mess because this became uh, somehow tied up in politics. It became seen by some people as a matter of personal freedom. Uh, some men saw this as an assault on their masculinity. I don't think I look good in the mask. And it was a simple public health measure. I like to think of this mask. This is not just a political statement or an assault on your personal freedom. This is a life-saving medical device. Think about it that way. It works. We have so much data to show that wearing masks, all of us, when we're outside around other people, or especially if we're inside around other people, we don't know, this is the way to keep from killing people. And as Christians, are we not called upon to be first in line if there's something we can do to save others' lives? And yet somehow we haven't done a very good job of getting that message to the point where people adopt it. This breaks my heart because we have lost lives because of the way in which this has been misunderstood. 
if we could do the reset button on that one right now, when we have 3,000 people a day dying, we could turn that curve downward. And while we're waiting for the vaccine, that's the most important thing we could do. So I'm glad you brought it up. And I'm sorry if I sound a little passionate, but it breaks my heart to see how something as simple as this has been turned into something so contentious and lives have been lost as a result. What? So, Francis, um, one pastor asks the question, and, and you sort of leaned into it. What can pastors say and model to help uh, their congregations move from a political posture to a Christ-like posture? Yeah. You, were, you, were, you, were, you were beginning to speak to that. Can you elaborate a little more on that? Thank you, Claude. And this is a tough time for pastors. They're beset yeah. by people who bring all kinds of baggage uh, to this issue uh, that comes from politics, that comes from social media, uh, it comes from the fact that we had a very contentious election year where somehow mask wearing became a symbol of who you were going to vote for. And I guess what I would really urge pastors to do is to try it to set all of that baggage aside as best you can and just basically put forward the facts. I think Christians know how to deal with facts and to say, folks, we've really, we've done some things that were not actually smart here over the last 11 months. And we still have some dark months ahead of us uh, to get through this. Could we not, as people who really believe in reaching out to those most vulnerable, do our part and let's look at the evidence of why these actions of mask wearing, of avoiding indoor gatherings, which sadly includes church gatherings, um, and focusing instead on what we can do to reach out with the food banks, with finding out who those people are who are at high risk and are afraid to go out and making sure that somebody's bringing their groceries and of attending to the enormous stress and mental health challenges that everybody is feeling right now by making ourselves available uh, to listen and counsel, even if it's gotta be virtually, because that's where there's so much pain and suffering. Sort of shift uh, the Christian perspective from being on the defensive uh, to being part of the solution. I think that's possible, but I know that's easy for me to say and very hard for a pastor to introduce when there are people in the church uh, who already have very strong opinions about how to deal with this, and many of whom still think that COVID-19 is a hoax. There are people in ICUs on ventilators who don't believe that they're there because of a virus, because that was a hoax. How did we get there? And should not Christians be the ones to stand up first and say, come on, let's put that kind of misunderstanding aside and work together uh, to try to achieve saving of lives? Uh let me ask, we're getting close to the hour again. Are you okay, Francis, going on another, we have quite a few other questions or thoughts. Could you go on another 10, 12 minutes or so? I can do another 10 or 12, and then I'm going to have to jump off and uh, deal with another vaccine discussion. Let's have a couple more questions. And then, uh, Claude, what, do you have something you want to ask? So, so in, the, in, the, in the chat also, and, and this, this does have some reference this this concern about the environment and climate and climate change can you speak a little bit to that sure 
And again, it's truly unfortunate that a topic that ought to be about science and ought to be about creation care uh, has become so politicized uh, that people's position seems to be defined more by political party than by the evidence. As a scientist um, who doesn't work directly on climate change, although it does have health consequences, so we at NIH do have an investment in that kind of research. It is absolutely clear uh, that our planet is warming at an unprecedented rate. And it is absolutely clear uh, that that is on the basis of human activity. Uh, to deny that at this point it is to look at a mountain of evidence and, and say that it is misguided or maybe even it's been made up. I just don't see how a rational person at this point could do so. So again, what are we called upon as Christians, uh, as those who have been given this gift uh, of a beautiful planet? I think it's part of our responsibility to be stewards and to think more deeply about how we can play a positive role in this contentious discussion about actions. It's getting late uh, in this challenge for interventions to happen. We've lost a lot of time that could have been implemented going back uh, many years, and yet it's not too late. And so. I would love uh, to see Christians, again, maybe push that reset button. <laughs> There's a lot of information that people have been fed that frankly just turns out not to be right. And let's look at the evidence and then let's figure out what can we do as individuals and as a Christian community uh, to try to be on the right side of caring for our planet. Not to do so has all kinds of consequences that are going to be really very difficult to watch, uh, and especially for those least fortunate in the world, the people who live in slums that are close uh, to sea level that are going to be washed away, uh, the terrible things that are happening already in Africa in terms of food supply. We are all responsible for that in a country that has lots of resources and we need to think about how to turn this in. Francis, thank you for being present. We're running toward the hour we don't, you do have other, we have other things to do uh, one of our, there are a lot of questions here. Uh, I have to say to them, read the language of God and go to BioLogos. <laughs> they get an answer to the many of those. One of our, one of our leadership breakfast group, uh, Frank just sent a note here, works for one of the big medical centers. He said, this is uplifting people of faith discussing how to put Christ's principles and example of work in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. So we appreciate that. Let me close, if I may, with this question. Someone else said, 90 hours a day. How do you live with that in your daily life? Let me ask, what, what resources? Where's, where's your hope, personally and for us, as we come into this Advent season? Christ has come. We believe he's going to return. Um, if we really believe that, how should we live? How do you live? Where do you find the strength day by day? And then we want to pray for you. So tell us how we can pray for you and Victor's going to close with a prayer in a minute. Well, what a wonderful question to be asked about. Yeah, 90 hours is a lot in one week. And yet I feel both at times exhausted, but also privileged to be able to do what I can uh, to put into practice all of the things I've learned about science and how to organize large scale teams uh, to tackle a problem. I wouldn't. I uh, wouldn't want to be doing anything other than this at this time of crisis. Uh, it is a little exhausting. I am fortunate uh, to have a soulmate, uh, my wife, Diane, and we're doing this together in every possible way. And that means the world to be able to get through a 
very tough day because it doesn't always go well and have somebody to share that with. I'm anchored in my faith. Uh, I get up every morning, usually at 4.30, and the first thing I really want to do is to get right uh, with my spiritual perspective on this and to reconnect uh, with the God of all creation, uh, to try to see if there's some insights that I can have into what we're facing, because there's always a challenge uh, in every day. And that undergirds me, that kind of sense of connectedness and, and a calling. This feels like a calling. And I guess we all are hoping in our life uh, to be in a circumstance where we feel like we've been given an opportunity to do something that God wants us to do. And I felt that this year. In terms of praying, I guess praying uh, for persistence when things don't always go exactly right. Uh, praying uh, to be as effective as possible in encouraging resistance <coughs> to, to melt away uh, from those who are still not convinced we're on the right path where I think God has given us an opportunity for healing. Um, uh, and yes, again, uh, praying for the ability on my part to love all of those voices, uh, some of which seem so against where we're trying to go, but still uh, we need to love each other and understand each other through love as God loves us, uh, all of that. Um, and yeah, I guess I am going to be a little mournful this season because I will not be with family for the first time in 25 years, uh, but I will still feel like this is what's been called to be necessary uh, for me and for others. And, and I don't want to have that in any way diminish the joy that I do feel and the hope that I feel that Christ is come and God is actually the author of all of this. And with our ability to stay focused uh, on what is true, what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable, all of those things in Philippians 4, God will see us. We are thankful God created you and called you. And uh, we have 23 questions. Um, Maybe we can send them to you just so you know what people are asking. I don't promise you'll answer them. You can't don't have time to do it. But do do it at BioLogos. BioLogos. Uh, the website is going to carry this uh, conversation sometime in the next few days. Uh, Deb Harsma is working on that. So will the Y website. So will our Latent Four Ministries website. So uh, tell other people about it. We've got a good group have been watching and viewing. Um, and thank you. Thank you so much. Claude, we want to say a final thanks, and then we'll have Victor close with a prayer. Well, again, Francis, your generosity uh, of giving us this, this time and yourself mm. uh, is, is much appreciated. You, you, you do not know what this investment means and how God will carry it through, through those who have watched and those who will watch. So I just, again, want to say thank you. Victor. Victor, uh, head of the Christian mission. Well, the Lord's the head of the Christian mission at the Y. He's using you. Close in prayer, if you will. Well, uh, Dr. Ford, thank you. Bishop uh, Alexander, thank you. Uh, Dr. Collins, I really enjoyed today's um, conversation. Let us pray. Father, during this Advent season, we're reminded of your word that says the word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. Father, we're thankful you that you dwelled among us during this inspiring conversation. It was evident that your presence was with us because during this coronavirus season, we have a need for Jesus. We're thankful for the wisdom of Dr. Collins. Thank you for allowing him to share with us what he has studied and what he has received from you. What he has poured out this morning, I ask that you pour back into him. Continue to give him strength as he works around the clock and be with his wife as she supports him. We thank you for giving him a calling for such a time as this. Give him persistence in the ability to love in the midst of division. Be with him during this holiday season as he's away from his family. You are a, fr a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So we ask God that this season he fills you close. Without vision, the people will perish. Give him a fresh outpouring of your vision and wisdom. He mentioned that it was breathtaking when he witnessed the vaccine. God, you are microscopic and macroscopic. But this morning, we ask that you breathe on us. Mm. Breathe on every household represented on this call. Keep them safe from the coronavirus. We ask that your healing power will be in the vaccines that are on their way. Dr. Collins had a Damascus Road experience. I ask that someone that views this recording will have a similar experience and be led to you. Father, we worship you in the cathedral and in the laboratory because we are in awe of you. Our country is in the red zone, but we put our trust in the blood of Jesus. Mm. In our distress, we called on the Lord and he answered. Father, in this season, we are calling on you. We ask that you answer. Father, we ask right now that you continue to have your way during this tough season. Be a light in the midst of darkness. We thank you for science and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Continue to use the NIH and BioLogos for your glory. It is in the matchless name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. 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 And a joyful and hopeful Christmas to all. Amen. Bye. Amen. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 91, 1 to 2.
responders such as Dr. Francis Collins, his colleagues, his team, Lord, and all those that are working in the hospitals, the nurses, all the staff, Lord, the doctors, God, in this community, outside of this community, Lord, may they find the shelter and the shadow of the Almighty God. May they hide under the shadow of your wings, God. May they be protected under your hand and under your protection, Lord, to have the rest that does not come of this world, but that comes in the presence of the Lord, God, and that they would be surrounded and filled and protected by your presence, Lord. We pray also for those that are seeking you in the midst of the pandemic, God, that those that are seeking you, seeking your face, Lord, wanting to know you and to know the answers to all the questions that have rose in the midst of the chaos and the changes and the detriment of this pandemic, Father. Lord, that they would continue to seek you and that they will find you, God, and they will find hope and rest in the arms of the Almighty through Christ. So we pray for all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Will you bow your heads for the benediction with me? What an amazing conversation. Let's pray for Dr. Francis Collins Layton in the body of Christ worldwide. That's representing him so much more than the little work, that little part of the work that we are doing here in New York City, that God is orchestrating a mosaic of people. So as you bow your head, remember that this gospel is global. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people say, amen. See you soon. Bye now. My name is Minyoung. I'm a member here at 18 Church, and we're so glad that you were able to attend today's service with us. Um, there are a few community news that I'd like to share with you all. The first announcement is about our tithes and offering. We want to remind all of our members here at 18 Church to keep God in the center of your life, which includes your finances. You guys can do so through the online payment method shown on the screen. You can give through Venmo at Church 180, Zelle and Chase QuickPay at offering at 180church.tv, or if PayPal is your preferred method of giving, you can head over to our website at 180church.tv where there is a link to donate through PayPal. If you're a visitor joining us today, welcome. If you feel blessed by their service and you feel led to give, you can do so in the payment methods that I mentioned before. Our next announcement is about our prayer text hotline at 180 Church, which is available on text at 5397prayer and also via email at prayer at 180church.tv. This is a resource for everybody and especially during this difficult time where we need some prayer and support, there is a prayer team that's ready to help you and to pray for all the requests that you may have. Um, if your prayers have been answered, you can also share them on the text hotline and we can celebrate the good news together. Next up is about small groups at 180 Church. These are smaller pockets of our community that meet on a weekly basis where we can dive a little bit deeper into the word and share how the message from that Sunday uh, spoke to us. We have a few different groups that are all meeting virtually now. And if you're not currently connected with the group, you can reach out to Pastor Billy at the email shown on the screen and he can get you plugged in into a group for you. On the topic of community, we also have a number of different social media handles and channels where you can follow us, like us, and love us during the week. We have a Tumblr page at 180BRG where we post a chapter of the Bible a day so you can read through the Bible with us. 
We also have a Facebook page at 180 Church. Dr. Sammy, our head pastor here at 180 Church, has a Twitter handle at Dr. Sammy Kim. We also have a YouTube channel at 180 Church NYC, where I'm sure most of you guys are watching us right now. And we also have two different Instagram pages at 180 Church and also at 180 BRG, where there are really encouraging posts and verses that get shared there. So I hope you guys will follow us there and be encouraged. We also have the 180 Church podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends, where you can tune into a conversation and a dialogue that goes into goes into the word a little bit deeper with Pastor Lydia and Joe Lu, who is a member of our community here. It's always a great time just listening to them um, converse about how the message has spoke to them and has impacted them, and you can see how it can do the same for you. We also have a virtual 180 Cafe on the Discord app where you guys can come hang out at any time in different groups on different channels and it's an easy way to stay connected with the community and also check in with one another. In addition to this, uh, we, have, we have a new addition which is our SoundCloud and it's a worship playlist of all the things that Pastor Lydia has played throughout this pandemic. So if you've been blessed by any song throughout this time, you'll see it there. Use it as a way to connect with God, to remember that God is with you, and to be blessed by Him and to bless others through this situation that's going on. And last but not least, if you'd like to learn more about our church and want to sign up for our weekly emails, you can come visit us at oneechurch.tv. That's it for all of our announcements. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you all next week. Bye!